Right, hi everybody. Um, I'm here with Dr. Tony Bleatman once again. We're going to do a little little video chat here today, and um, part of the chat is about why we set up our new professional membership site. Because uh, some of you are, are already members, we've actually grown to roughly about 150 members in in a couple of weeks, which has been really really good. And that's without any marketing or advertising. The fact purely through word of mouth, really. And the membership association has been set up primarily because we've been asked to do it. We've been asked for years and years and years to put together some sort of membership association. And when we first started in FPS, blimey, 30 odd years ago, we actually did have a membership and people joined as members and they, they asked us again. They, at that time, they asked us for, for membership. So we set something up. Um, but I got rid of it in the early days because people, you know, weren't using it properly and it was costing, you know, taking more time to, to manage it than it was to actually get anything functional done with it. So we, we lapsed it and we, we done away with it, but we've now got, you know, the right people on board. We've got the right advisory panel there. And the reason that Tony's here is, is Tony is our medical expert on the advisory panel for the professional membership association now. Uh, so I wanted to invite Tony along to talk a bit about his background, to talk about what he what he does, you know, how, and basically, Tony, I mean, you know, how did you go from being a, an NHS doctor to getting to the position you are now with? Because with, you, you are quite unique, and, and I think that I should explain this. You are one of probably the only medical professional people I know that's done, I think, virtually every system or every recognisable system of restraint out there, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. And before that, I had a little bit of um, uh, military experience, but that's a long, long time ago now. So you've asked how I got to it. Well, I'll try and keep it short because it is a, a, a long, convoluted story. I was uh, brought up in North London and um, eventually became a consultant in emergency medicine. And I spent a lot of time working on the, in pre-hospital care, working on the air ambulances and I suppose I look back with pride to the days where we started to set up the modern version of the air ambulance with doctors on board. But early in my consultant career, and I was a consultant in 1996, um, I was very keen to get published because in those days, they used to say about doctors, you either publish or perish, you had to have your name out there. And um, I started talking to some policemen in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary where I was working at the time. And we wrote up a series of stab victims to get my name in print. And I got my name in print, a very unimaginative paper about what happens when police put an initiative on the street to try and reduce knife crime. It doesn't really matter. But at that point, um, I got it published and forgot about it. Uh, maybe a year went by and I got a phone call from the secretary of the uh, Police Federation of England and Wales, and I was still a very junior doctor. And he said, Dr. Bleatman, I understand you're an expert on stabbings. I wasn't, and I didn't lie to him. I said, please go on. And he said, we have a problem. Our police officers are facing knife threats on the street. We wanna give them body armor, and we don't know what to do because there's so many different types of body armor. Can you help us? And I found it a bit of an intellectual challenge and I got involved with it. And actually the answer was, was quite straightforward when you, when you looked at what was required for police body armor. I mean, one thing led to another and I got involved with the home office and I managed to get a PhD out of, out of it. My name was on the specification for knife resistant body armor. I think it probably still is. And it's, it's a bit of a global thing. So having done this for the police, 
they automatically and incorrectly assumed that I was the medical expert for anything to do with the use of force. And at this point in my life, the only use of force that I'd had experience was with uh, was uh, from my time in the military many, many years ago, which had very little to do with what you and I are dealing with today. So I was getting requests from the cops coming in and one of them came in and they said, uh, we've had a complaint about a neck hold that's been used in Leicestershire, can you comment? I said, yeah, sure, because I used to do these little jobs, they used to pay me decent money and uh, everyone was a winner. And I was getting involved with reading this police complaint and I got a phone call from the angriest man in the world, <laughs> the late great Peter Boatman, who at that point was head of training at Northamptonshire. And he said to me, who are you? Who are you to get involved with officer safety? What do you know about the uh, threats that my officers face on the street? He said, you could listen to me. He said, you can do, play this two ways. Number one, keep doing what you're doing and I will shoot you down publicly. You will never work for the police again. Or number two, man up, take three weeks off work and come and spend it with me in the training environment. And I did. I took three weeks off work and I subjected myself to three weeks of being hurt and had my joints bent and I was battened and bludgeoned and custodied and restrained and ground pinned and all the, all the other good stuff. And I came out at the end of it holding a certificate to say that I was now a police ex, a police instructor in unarmed defensive tactics, baton use, I think incapacitant spray, custody, so a few other bits and pieces, which was cool. And I realized for the first time that you could actually start to measure what you do in terms of use of force. And in, back in the early 90s when this happened, or the late 90s when this happened, uh, Peter Boatman exposed me to, for the first time, to reporting systems that you can measure what you teach, measure the effects, does it work, does it not work? What skills can we teach adult learners? And that was uh, revolutionary for me. That was a whole new concept. I kind of assumed until then that police officers, you gave them a truncheon, you gave them a couple of judo throws and that was it. So at this point, I had a bit of credibility with the police because I'd done their training and indeed from time to time actually uh, trained on police courses. Um, and we recognised that there was a gap with protecting health staff in the acute health sector that uh, healthcare workers were getting assaulted and spat at and abused. And we got involved with some rudimentary training programmes. And then it became obvious that not just acute health, but uh, airlines, cruise ships, prisons, mental institutions, uh, centers for autistic children, elderly, and so on and so forth, all had their uh, peculiar challenge when managing challenging behavior. They had their own uh, unique set of challenges and difficulties. And so I started doing medical reviews for these organizations. And I think, it probably parallels your work, Mark, where we have witnessed together the evolution, almost as a, a of a science, as a discipline in managing challenging behaviour. And I think both you and I have witnessed it go from the days of truncheons and judo throws, or the old-fashioned, um, you know, CNR as it was taught to the, to the police, to the prison service. It was CNR, Home Office approved, and you did it or you didn't do it, and that. That was pretty much the standard back in the late 90s. We're talking about um, that each sector that's out there, transport, custodial, 
youth, elderly care, mental health, learning disabilities, education, acute health, mental health, prisons, police. Each one of those sectors, each one of those organizations has their own unique set of circumstances in which they have to manage challenging behavior and sometimes violent behavior, and sometimes with different objectives. The objective of the police is to control and the objective in the health sector is to care and support. They're very different objectives and therefore their requirements are very, very different when it comes to managing challenging behavior. So you asked how I got from being an NHS doctor to all of this. Well, I was led through the first part of this by Peter Boatman to understand what the policing environment was. And then I rapidly found out that when other organizations asked me to do a medical review that their needs and working environments were very, very different. And so the, um, I got involved with NICE guidance on, on uh, the group that formulated clinical guidance 25 and subsequently, subsequent to that, I got involved with them as well. And um, I started to go into uh, largely mental health uh, facilities and training organizations to look at the safety. And it became really clear to me that it's not just a medical review that these people need, they need the whole package. What do they need? They need someone to understand what their organization is all about. What's their policy? What's their approach? What's the, who's the, who are their who are their staff and who are their staff looking after? Let's understand that. And if they're talking about managing behavior and managing violence occasionally, then are they going about that in a legally and ethically sound way? Are they following the legislation? Do they know about common law, criminal law, the Human Rights Act, mental, mental capacity, and the Mental Health Act, to name but a few that are relevant to this, this, this area? Are they compliant with guidelines? And then do they have a reporting process? And that reporting process for me is critical. I want to understand what they're doing. Does it work? Does it not work? And are people getting hurt? And how can we make it better? So I'm fairly keen to look at that. I'm fairly keen to look at manuals as well. And then, and you'll know this way better than me, Mark, that when we start to look at what we're teaching and who we're teaching, we're often getting people into training that are maybe past their prime in age and, 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 and physical uh, capacity, physical ability. What you mean like us? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And um, we're asking them to go to a gym uh, to learn a number of techniques and for new stuff, it's something they've never encountered before. And suddenly we're facing them, they're faced with having to learn 10 techniques, 20 techniques about things that they hope never to encounter. And then we need to start thinking about what is the capacity of that adult learner who doesn't particularly want to learn these skills in learning the skills and skills that we need to work in the heat of the moment when they actually need them to keep people safe. So there's that element. There's the occupational health element. Are they fit to train? Are they fit to be trained? And so all of this happens before we look at those few skills that are going to be delivered in the syllabus for that organization. The right skills that we've selected through a training needs analysis. We've considered the vulnerabilities of the, the group in care. Do they have uh, BMI issues? Do they have extreme uh, age issues? Do they have musculoskeletal problems, do they have Down syndrome, Prada-Willi syndrome, Erla-Danlos syndrome, brittle bone syndrome, so on and so forth. 
what is the pe peculiar what are the peculiar vulnerabilities of that group that we need to really really consider for staff to teach them those skills and then we need to deliver those skills to staff that aren't that keen on learning them and have a limited capacity to learn them and they've got to be used um operationally with little uh, with little or no notice so the challenge is huge and all of that happens before we look at the skills in isolation so what does that mean we look at the five or seven or ten skills in the syllabus that everyone's agreed we go through the syllabus and then i start to think about what are the injuries to staff in the training environment how do we how do we mitigate those risks and we look at the potential for injury to service users and staff in the operational environment and what methods we can introduce into training to mitigate those risks and the way that i've been doing it recently in fact more recently than when i did your uh, review last is i put a little section in there which i'm quite pleased with now which is and it talks about uh, risk reduction strategies having identified risks in a syllabus I give the training organization a risk reduction strategy to paste into their manual for their trainers to, to address specifically during training. Long-winded answer to a very eloquent question. I apologize, Mark. No, no, it's, it's, it's really important. And um, it's interesting when you talk about skills and techniques, because, you know, and if, if I'm teaching anyone who's watching this to suck eggs, forgive me, but there's a difference between a skill and a technique. And a technique is a combination of skills. And when we did a training needs analysis for one organization a few years back, there was 137 component movements that they had to learn within a three hour training program. And they were wondering why staff couldn't remember the thing. And they were saying, well, it's only, it's only you know, these techniques and they could do it in three hours because that's all the time we can allocate. But you've got, as you've identified, you've got people there who didn't join the profession to all of a sudden get involved with restraining people who are presenting challenging behavior. They join because they want to be a healthcare worker because they care for people. Or they join the education profession because they want to make a difference in people's lives. And I can always remember having a discussion with Pete Boatman about this years ago. He said, where on the advert, he said, to become a teacher, does it say, oh, and by the way, you're going to have to do some mud wrestling with your pupils, you know, instead of unarmed combat with them, because there's, there's, there's not the motivation there. Um, so there's still, you know, I come across it, I know you come across it, there's, there's still overcomplicated systems out there with, with too many techniques and they're made up of too many compounded skills, which to me is, is failing that the people have to use it and failing the people that got to use it on because you know, the, the cognitive processing required for that is way too much. So where this conversation is leading us is that we've learned, I think the last 30 years, 20, 30 years, of, we've witnessed a revolution in the whole in the whole subject that wasn't really a subject or a discipline before it was a cnr manual or it was a truncheon or it was a straitjacket if we're absolutely honest where things were 30 years ago look where we are now i look back working with people like yourself and other leaders in the field from other disciplines i look back with a sense of pride we're now talking about what we can train will they learn them how do we set up an organization that's ethically sound and working within the law in delivering skills how do we make sure that uh, service users have an individual care plan that reflects their own uh, peculiar or particular uh, trigger for violence what are the uh, strategies that staff can uh, use to bring them down and, and, and avoid physical intervention and so on and so forth so I look back with pride but i also look ahead at, at the challenges that, that are facing us and you know there are mixed opinions about which set of standards we need to comply with 
Is it build rapid uh, restraint reduction uh, network? Is it outside of health? Is it something in education? Uh, is it something that's more um, police aligned or prison service aligned, depending on your organization? So there are constraints and sometimes within those constraints and guidelines and requirements, there are difficulties. Now I'm not here to talk politics about different organizational requirements or national requirements. That, that's not what I'm here to, to talk about. But what I can say with confidence is that each set of guidelines or requirements from a national body such as BUILD or anybody else poses a challenge to organizations. And a lot of the work sometimes is to help organizations try to comply with the guidelines that are imposed upon them or they impose upon themselves. Um, so I think that, you know, you and I can look back with a huge sense of pride. And I think when we look globally, I am utterly convinced that the UK is many decades ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to this really challenging issue of managing uh, challenging behavior and managing violence. We are light years ahead of anything else. And we just need to look at recent events in America where it is you know, apparently okay and you get off kneeling on someone's neck until they die, you get off, it's not a problem. Um, it's a very different environment and I'm fiercely proud of the work that you, I and others have uh, done in the last 20, 30 years to make this environment much safer. But I also look at that and I suppose where we are today is that in any organization that has to manage challenging behavior or physical violence, they don't just require me, they don't just require a good trainer such as yourself, they don't just require a good uh, lawyer to come in to look at it, they need a multidisciplinary team to do it once and to do it properly, to make sure that they're set up properly, that their training provider knows who the staff group is, who the, who the uh, population in care is and what is required and what needs to be delivered to, to staff and how do you monitor it. You do it once, you do it properly, you have a reporting process and you do some fine tuning according to the, what comes out of your reporting process and occasionally after uh, an adverse incident we need to get involved so that's that's roughly where i think we are yeah no you're, you're, you're right and i was working with a very large healthcare provider up till recently we've been with them for about 12 years and we've managed to eliminate you know particularly floor restraints by about 88 percent across the board and it would have been over 90 percent, but they actually bought another company that was that was running a a different system should we say and they were still very much prone to first place to go and and i think yeah you're right you know we all should be proud of, of of what's been achieved so far but you know when you talk about regulatory bodies or or, or having some code of practice or guidance for, for me it, it's always been there because you, you've got the health and safety work act you know you've mentioned you've got the laws um so if you apply what's already there i sometimes wonder why we need something in addition to that particularly if it's not mandatory um, but from my experience, being, being from the training provider perspective, what, what I get regularly is people will contact us and they say, we'd, we'd like to do some training. So you say, okay, what would you like training in? PMBA, restraint, whatever. Okay, right. And then you ask them the question, you know, what, what's your population that you're serving? And they go, no, we just, need, we just need to get some training done. Yeah, okay, but, what, you know, are you adults, children with learning disabilities, autism, elderly, what have you got? And they go, well, we're working with adults with learning disabilities from okay right what's the level of risk and these are basic questions you, you ask and sometimes they go well look can you just give us a price for training and you have to question sometimes and i understand the pressures on people out there 
but at, at organizational level the need to understand what you're buying in uh, and the, the liability associated with that because you and i both know that when an organization brings in a training provider they're responsible and they're liable for that that training that's brought into their organization it's not the training provider necessarily but um i think you know having said that looking back over the last 20 30 years that was all that was needed you know can you teach restraint yeah great how much do you cost brilliant get in at least now we're having sensible conversations what i'm seeing now you're right what i'm seeing now is um some very enlightened organizations some very switched on organizations the message is getting through i was doing a review for one organization uh maybe a month ago um whose challenge was they had inherited a training package that was utterly inappropriate and useless for, for their organization they had three thousand staff across more than 30 care facilities each one of those care facilities had a slightly different population and and it represented the entire spectrum of challenging behavior from forensic uh troubled youth challenging elderly people uh, an, an adult population with huntington's disease with their own specific uh issues this organization was facing a challenge that i think I've never seen before in reviewing these things. It was huge across the entire spectrum from little children in care to the uh, upper end of uh, upper extreme of age and everything in between. Fully grown um, autistic uh, children with attitudes sometimes. And their challenge was to get 3000 people trained in a short period of time with a package that they had developed. And it was by and large a, a pretty good package. And having worked with them for a couple of days, I think we came up with a reasonable, at least, you know, starting point. Um, and I, and I've, you know, my I left there feeling a huge amount of respect for the small training and under-resourced training uh, faculty that has been put together by the company, and they're doing a tremendous job. And it, there's a lot of good people out there who get what you and I've been banging on about for years and they're actually making it happen. And our job, I think, is to make sure that we are there to support them through the process. You know, you're right. And I think this is one thing as an association that we've talked about is bringing people together with those core skills to have that multidisciplinary approach. Because the other side of the coin, unfortunately, and I, I was dealing with an organization about two or three weeks ago, is they have a multidisciplinary team. But the restraint trainers uh, are not involved in it. The health and safety person's not involved in it. Um, it's mainly psychiatrists and, and social workers that are involved in, in, in the discussions and, and end up agreeing what should and shouldn't be taught. And they had a, a very, very bad assault on a member of staff. In fact, they had a few. So the staff were now raising issues with their manager. And that's when I got involved. And I said, well, where's the risk assessment? Let's have a look at the risk assessment. I said, and let's have a look who's been involved in the risk assessment. And they said, well, we've done a risk assessment. And it says we should have this equipment. And we said, okay, well, why haven't you got it? I said, the, the multidisciplinary team don't like us having the equipment. And this is, goes, this is partly a throwback to some of the stuff you're talking about is where this all came from. You know, I, I still hear, sadly, some psychologists and psychiatrists talking about shackling people when they're referring to mechanical restraints. You know, and we're not going to shackle them and leave them hanging off a wall like they did in Victorian ages. But there's still that link, this historical link that a piece of equipment means that you're you're treating them badly when in fact in some cases it could save a life 
Very much so. And I think, um, I mean, there is this awful hangover from the days of straight jackets and shackles. It's, it's, there's a hangover. And the moment you start talking about mechanical restraints, people make that connection and start uh, talking about how degrading and inhuman it is. But I think it, it's a hugely important point here that there um, are a number of products out there which when used appropriately and in the right context by the right people on the right population at the right time will minimize injury to both parties, will minimize degradation to a service user, will avoid them having to be manually restrained for a, a prolonged periods of time and will enhance the safety of any restraint pending escalation to either medical intervention or nursing intervention or de-escalation of another sort. And um, I think this is a message that we have to um, get out there and particularly some of the products the, uh, the the safety pod solution essentially it's a nice forgiving comfy bean bag with a little bit of form to give you some support that allows you to uh, uh, get someone seated to control their upper limbs without any any uh, any significant force being required and de-escalate the situation. It's a beanbag, but it's being used as a mechanical restraint, and it's a damn good one. Mm -hmm. There are other, there there are other examples out there as well where we are um, just using something that is uh, soft and is non-injurious that is going to obviate the need for prolonged manual restraints and sitting on people and holding people prone supine or on their side or whatever. Um, and I think that we need to continue educating people that a mechanical restraint does not equal shackles and straitjackets. It doesn't. Do you, and the other thing is, I hear it, and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure, well, I know you hear it, is where the argument of ethics and morals is brought up. You know, you, you can't use that type of technique because it's not ethically right. You can't use mechanical restraint because it's not morally correct. Now, you and I both know, if, if anyone watching this, go Google what ethics and moral means, because all that means is is you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. You, you act for the greater good. So okay, a, a situation, again, I was asked to advise on was a nine hour restraint. Staff getting involved with a nine hour restraint of a COVID positive patient. Uh, and this COVID positive patient is actively spitting at staff. They've got open wounds, so there's bodily fluids coming out. And there were other fluids involved as well, which we won't go there, which, which were being thrown at staff. Um, and I said, well, why, why don't you use equipment? Why don't you look at um, seclusion? Why don't you look at pods? Why don't you look at belts? Why don't you look at mechanical restraint? And I was told by the person I was talking to, no, that's all been, their words, outlawed the psychiatric uh, psychiatric liaison team will not allow it because it is ethically opposed to the therapeutic relationship with the patient that's not good for anyone because it's a hangover from from old thinking for me i mean what's your what's your take on that not very much so it's um there's still that mental uh, connection with anything mechanical straight jackets and shackles there's one principle that I think we would agree across the board, and that is that uh, the application of restraint or you know, in rare circumstances, um, a painful stimulus should never be used for education or for controlling behavior or, or, or for modifying behavior. That is, I think, to anybody's mind, utterly abhorrent and, 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 and shouldn't be there. We put that to one side. 
Um, I think that prolonged periods of restraint because we can't manage people is also as equally as abhorrent as, 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 as using pain to punish people or restraint to punish people. But I think um, we need to get it out there, the message that a considered mechanical restraint is an awful lot safer and less demeaning than rolling around on the floor for hours on end, hoping for the situation to, to, to calm down and de-escalate. I think it's a question of education that I think people like you and I and others uh, need to get out there through uh, education and conferences. Yeah, but there's still these biases exist. I mean, the pain compliance, you mentioned the word pain. Pain compliance is, is, a, is a prime example of that, where if you even mention the word pain and it's, no, it can't be done. There's even people saying it's illegal. You can't use pain, particularly with children. It's against the law. And it's not. You and I know it's not. But, but you know, I'll give you another situation I dealt with some time ago was there was a particular patient, very large, very heavy, very strong patient, I believe over 20 stone in weight um, with, with mental health issues. And this patient had, uh, used to bang their head on the, on the corner of a wall. So they, in their behavior care plan, they were you know, close to serious brain damage, possibly even death. That was what was written up. Two female staff, um, not fit. Uh, you know, and when I say fit, not, not fit like a sports person. You know they they they're not in the best of health they you know one of them was was a grandmother she she had hip and knee problems but they were caring for this particular patient on the day and the patient started becoming angry and aggressive and wanted to harm herself so they grabbed hold of her and these two female staff were being thrown around like rag dolls and, and i've got to be honest i'm only saying female staff because it was female staff i reckon two male staff would have been thrown around like rag dolls because of the size and strength of this person as she headed towards the wall the two female staff put wrist locks on her so intentionally applied pain which stopped her from moving stopped her banging her head stopped the potential for brain damage and possibly even death but both was were investigated both were suspended uh, by a manager on the basis that they'd acted um, in an abusive way by putting a pain compliance technique on someone intentionally so when i got involved with this i said well, where's what is the issue you know you know we would talk about you know i said we'd talk about how we can prevent this later on and reduce this but from what you've just described to me they've actually saved this patient's life and stopped any further injury it was I, crazy i actually had a conversation with the head of build about this about the issue of pain compliance the head of who sorry build oh build right yeah, yeah. and he actually said something that i used because it was so beautifully put he said, I would never deliberately reach out and yank my child. But if my child was about to run out into a busy road and be hit by a car, then it, I would absolutely reflexively reach out, grab my child and hoist him back and hoik him back in as quickly as possible so he didn't get run over by a car. And I actually think that's quite a good way of talking about or, or, or thinking about pain compliance. Of course, we don't want deliberately. Uh, we don't want to deliberately inflict pain to anybody at any time. Why would you want to do that? But if the deliberate application of pain prevents a much greater evil, injury, or death, then yes, absolutely. Uh, but we need to recognise that it has a very limited, a very restricted uh, role, uh, an important role in certain organisations with certain service users. And provided we um, are very clear and everybody understands, it is never there for education or for punishment oh, or for humiliation. It is there to 
prevent serious injury and death, which are greater evils than the short application of pain. I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's, it goes back to this mute point that you've raised at the beginning, that there needs to be a, a functional, I'm going to use the word functional, multidisciplinary approach to this with the right people sat around that table to make the right decisions. And, and that means, you know, medical professional advice from someone like you, and legal advice, you know, having someone there that understands the law, because all too often, you know, you hear, well, you can't do that because the, the law says you can't do it. Well, well, you know, in some cases, that's just made up stuff. You know, it's, it's an opinion and it's a biased opinion because they, they don't like the technique. But, I, you know, I, I wouldn't. I totally agree with you. You, you know, why would you want to put, use pain to modify behavior? Why would you want to use pain just to teach someone a lesson? I mean, that's against the law to start with, you know, and I, and I, it absolutely should not be done. But in extreme cases, in exceptional cases, there, there's a need for it, particularly when you look at the service user demographic sometimes compared to the staff demographic, you know, and you, you've got some very powerful services out there. And even in schools, you've got some very powerful children now. And the staff, you know, didn't join up. They, they, they didn't go and apply on the job on the basis that they're going to become proficient at restraining the people they want to care for or, or educate, you know. So it's got to be looked at holistically. Very much so. So I think, you know, what, what, what you've done by pulling together all these disciplines to an advisory panel is exactly where we, we you know, organisations need to go. You've got legal, you've got medical, um, you've got uh, behavioral coming in and you've got the training background the tactical bit and suddenly when you start to pull, pull together all these disciplines we are now able to offer organizations that multidisciplinary advice multidisciplinary approach to the way that they're going to have to manage challenging and violent behavior yeah we've got we've got health and safety in there as well now colin ash has now joined the advisory panel as well so we we've got a really good strong panel and i i think that people can benefit from that you know so if organizations want that multidisciplinary approach there's a service there we can offer to them you know that i think that'll be a good thing for the panel to do um, yeah it's so i mean bringing this bring this forward it's um i think the last 20 years in the last 20 years, we have witnessed a complete revolution, a complete uh, advance, huge advance in, in, in the whole field from CNR, so-called home office approved manuals. So now we're talking about medical reviews, ethical reviews, legal reviews. We're talking about nice clinical guidance standards. We're talking about ethical um, constraints. We're talking about a knowledge of the law and we're talking about tactical knowledge. We're talking about occupational health, fitness to train and be trained. And we're talking about individual care plans, individual behavior management plans. And we're talking about considering the environment in which staff have to work. And it's no longer a question of please can we buy some training from you, Mr. Dawes or Mr. Someone else? It's actually thinking, sitting down and thinking, what do we need to keep everybody safe? Mm. And it's not just an off-the-shelf package by yourself or any other trainer that's out there. It's about taking a deep breath and starting from the top. Why are we here? What's our strategy? Who's our service user group? Who's our staff group? What is the threat that we um, uh, face? And what is the potential or the capability of our staff to be taught and to safely execute these skills in the operational environment and, and so on and so forth. So I think there's that realization. And I think, you know, you've been spearheading this and leading the way and we're winning the battle. People are getting it now. People, you know, still have the occasional, no disrespect intended, physiotherapy review 
to tick the box of medical safety of their skills. And on that point, and I've seen some of these, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, a physiotherapist will say, in this skill, you are manipulating the elbow from 40 degrees to 175 degrees. You know, anything beyond this is going to cause injury or pain or something. Nothing wrong with that. Um, it talks about the biomechanics, but in the real world, giving staff a book that says in skill number 16, you will be bending your knee by 20 degrees and your shoulder will be abducted by 40 degrees. That's great, but is that going to make it safer? I would suggest probably not. I think, you know, we need a little bit more in terms of biomechanics, considering the constitutional factors of staff and this service user group to work out what's what the risks are so you know when as as i've um, as you've seen and as i've mentioned doing a review for any particular skill set risks in training risks operationally what's the likelihood of those risks and the key thing what's the risk mitigation strategy for that particular skill set and that's something that is relatively new in, in in the way that i do these things so the trainer who's standing there can say right boys and girls We've done this skill. Bear in mind, these are the things that are dangerous or could be dangerous if it's allowed to go this way. So in order to prevent that injury to you or the service user, this is how we're going to teach the skill. This is how you're going to deploy the skill. So it's that little, yeah. it's little difference. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. But here's one I heard. I had to write this down, actually, um, for this minute. I haven't, I haven't primed you on this. Um, I'll, I'll read it. it says, someone told me this. You can't remove a skill right, from the training program because you have to have the whole training program. Otherwise, it's not legally or medically defensible. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've read that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what they, what they, this, and what they were told, they, they rang me up and said, look, we're looking for training. Someone's come out to us and they've said that they can offer us training, but we have to have everything that's in this package. And if we take one skill out or one technique out, and it's not legally or medically defensible. And I said, well, do you need the whole thing? They said, no, no, we only need a very small part of it. It's quite low level what we're doing. But to get the small part, we've got to buy the whole thing. And I, I thought, well, do you know what? It's, it's like if, if I went to, and I don't go there, but if I went to McDonald's and, uh, and, they, and I said, look, I'd like a burger. And they went, yeah, but you've got to have fries and a coffee with it. Oh, I don't want fries and a coffee with it. And you've got to go large on it. I don't want to go in large on it. I just want a burger. I'd, I'd walk out of there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy it. So there is still some people, you like that analogy, don't you? Yeah. But there's still some, some people out there who think, oh, oh, oh selling the everything or nothing, when it, it shouldn't be like that at all, because it defeats the object of where this industry has gone and the things we've achieved in, in all these years. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think we have made tremendous advances from the days of dnr and home office approved techniques and a couple of judo throws in the gym and all the rest of it and there's now an awareness and i'm seeing this it's, it's mushrooming in this in this country and we are world leaders in this i have no doubt there's now a realization that we need to tailor our intervention package and more importantly integrate it with our behavior management plan and integrate it with how the structure of the day is organized how the timetable is how to how we ensure that we minimize the threat of challenging behavior by actually caring for people, by making sure that we make our environment and working day as 
friendly and as supportive as possible so they don't feel over regimented or over controlled and people have latitude to exhibit their own individual behaviors um so i think that we we've reached that point now where we can look at the the, the management of challenging behavior uh, in a very uh, horizontal way in a very broad way where physical interventions represent one small very small but important part of managing that organization and maintaining the safety of that organization and we've achieved that yeah uh, we've always we've always had that view haven't we yeah we've always had that view that it's just one small part of a whole range of, of disciplined and approaches that organizations must adopt. Now going back to your point you know, if someone phones up and says i want your training package mr doors and that ticks the safety box it doesn't it no. doesn't in the slightest they should come to you and say, Mr. Dawes, we have, this is our population, this is our staff group, these are our care facilities, what skills do you think we need? And you'd probably say, well, what's the risk you face? Show me your reporting system and let's, we'll put together a syllabus that's going to work for your organisation. And that's great and that's how it should be. And that should be taught to staff on a foundation of legal and ethical principles, on a foundation of behaviour management, de-escalation skills, communication skills, customer care skills. And it should be taught to be integrated into that and to be relied upon as what you have to do when everything else fails and it's done in such a way that it's appropriate and relevant for your population and is most unlikely or least likely to cause injury or god forbid death to the service user or the staff or the staff member yeah we've even got a little bit further with that now no one can book on our restraint instructors course from the website they can get all the information on it but they have to fill out an application form now and we have to have a conversation and there's a couple of reasons for that is one is i don't want someone spending a lot of money on something they don't need so from a business perspective i'm trying to protect people from, from you know not getting a return on their investment another perspective is i want to make sure we get the right people on the courses the people that they've got the right attitude and the right aptitude on the courses and thirdly you know it's nice to actually understand what they want to do with it you know the basic question you know where are you now where, where do you want to be and, and will this be part of the vehicle that gets you there so and that's worked really well and this is why i mean someone asked me the other week you know you don't you we don't seem to have a you know a bad training course you don't get any bad people on your training course we, we haven't had you know any bad people if that's the right word on a training course in years because we've got a relationship with everyone and we've got this ethos that goes around it uh, people call it the nfps family now and and it works, you know, the whole thing works. And, and we, you know, we're, we're fortunate and grateful to have people like you involved and, and Eric Baskin involved and Ginger Johnson and Lofty Wiseman involved and Colin Ash involved. So we've got some great people that, that support the whole process. And I, I think there's, there's uh, you know, massive benefits in doing it that way. I mean, we could just put a buy now button up there and people can buy it and then, you know, great, come on the course, but we, we, don't, we don't want to go down that, down that route. But just before we go, I mean, one of the things that you're offering through the association is you're offering a, a, a discount on your medical reviews now aren't you yeah well, i think so um uh, i'm very comfortable offering a uh, a 25 percent discount which is reasonably significant that is i'll tell you what if, if you're listening to this right write that down and keep a copy of this video because that is massively significant because i know how much this bugger charges me for medical reviews <laughs> <laughs> the issue is that um i think it's worth it to me because I want to get the message out there. I want to make sure that we get it as safe as is humanly possible for people out there that have to face these challenges. So yeah, I'm offering through your organization a 25% discount.
Yeah. So, guys, if you're in the association, and anyone can join the association, there's, there's an associate membership and there's a professional membership. And Tony's offering 25% discount on his medical reviews if you're a member. So that's great. And, and by the way, if you have trained with us and you know that Tony does all the medical reviews for our techniques, that doesn't mean that you don't need a medical review when you go back to work uh, and you take it back into your place of work because there's different dynamics in your own place of work. So it's worth having that topped up and looked at from a more holistic approach as well. That's brilliant, Tony. Um, any, any other things you want to add in? At this stage no not at all i think um uh, we've got to a really good place in terms of understanding what what's required um we still need to educate people out of the uh the these misguided associations between safe mechanical restraints and shackles and straight jackets we need to deal with that and we need to make sure that people giving advice to organizations are the right ones not just the most medically qualified you know the psychiatrist in charge of the unit who knows maybe not so much about use of force interventions as uh, other other staff groups but we need to make sure the right people are giving the right advice to the right uh, the right user yeah brilliant that's fantastic mate well listen thanks for that and no doubt we'll we'll uh, do another one of these at some stage that now got you in the association i'll use you and abuse you if that's all right with you with the greatest pleasure <laughs> thanks tony all right buddy speak to you soon